Well, good morning. At this point, if you're part of the junior high or high school, you guys are free to take off to your own programming, and uh, thanks for hanging out with us for worship. We're moving here at the end of this series uh, called Empty Promises. This is our last week. For those of you who weren't engaged in this series, this has been our spiritual growth campaign, and so we really called our church together, hey, to get into small groups, into community units, and really focus in and challenge our hearts on one particular topic or subject. We do this every year about this time, and this particular one has been about idols, Really looking at what is it in our heart that we worship more than God. And those idols offer us these empty promises that um, honestly they first tell us, hey, you can have this. You can have this success. You can have this achievement. You can have this beauty. Whatever it is, acceptance, you name it. But in the end, we find out that it only deceives us. It's not giving us really what it says it will. You may have success in an area, but you've lost everything in your family. You may have an opportunity to see a great, uh, um, a great attention given to you because of how beautiful or how good you look, but eventually the lie comes out and your character is revealed. Whatever it is, these different idols are the things that we end up fighting through and fighting with. And I was thinking about fights and uh, I've only had a few fights in my life, and all of them, I think, were before I was the age of 10. Uh, it was um, first grade, is the, was the first fight, I, actually, the only fight I ever had at school, actually. Anybody ever get in a fight at school, you yourself? Anybody get expelled for a fight? No, you don't have to answer that. But I was, I was uh, sitting in this class, the first grade, and um, the bully of the school actually was the first kid I met in this first grade class, which was interesting. And his name, his name doesn't matter. I'd probably get sued if I said his name. But anyway, the point is that uh, this, meeting this kid, and, and, and first I liked him. He was neat. And as time went by, I found out he was poking and pushing and pushing the kids around and yelling at him and threatening kids. And he finally came to my group of friends. We were out running around on the, I can still remember exactly where at Vicentio I was standing. And he comes up to me and starts yelling at my friends, telling us to do something. He's like, we're like, we're not going to do that. He's like, oh yeah, you're going to do that. And he's like, give him an attitude. Now, I was a big first grader. I stopped growing in junior high and it just didn't grow any since that point. And, but I was a pretty big first grader. And so I was able to look at this kid and look him in the eye. It was the only time I was just like, no. And I shoved him to the ground. He got up, ran away crying and never bothered my group again. The only fight I had in school, I won. And it was only a couple seconds long. But um, not really a fight. <laughs> so you're like, that's not a fight. No, I know. But Maybe the reason I was willing to do that was because there was a, the fights I really had been involved in were on my street, were in the kids in my neighborhood. I wasn't usually in the fight. I was usually the object being pummeled during the fight. And so found myself continuously being like basically punched, kicked or whatever by this group of boys in my neighborhood. And they would look at me and they'd say, it's okay, you're a big boy, Greg. You don't have to cry. You're a big boy, Greg. And, and so this kind of mentality rolled into one day. I was just so sick of it. I was in my backyard. One of the kids was there hanging out and started you know, started, I must have been really annoying or something, I don't know, but eventually he didn't like what I said or something, and so I put my fists up. Now, I'm in kindergarten, so get how old I am here. It's like that big, you know, so I'm like, you know, ready to go. I'd been doing push-ups, I'd been doing sit-ups, I mean, there's a, you know, I'm in kindergarten, I shouldn't be doing that stuff, and I'm just ready to go, and this kid just goes, boom, clocks me right in my two front teeth. They instantly become wiggly. That's how I lost my two front teeth. That was the end of the fight too, by the way. My mom came screaming outside while blood's dripping down my face and stops the whole thing. And he gets sent home. I guess he got in trouble. But the bottom line was that simply that I've, you know, that was my one fight that I lost. And what's interesting about that fight is it's still going on. There's something about that fight for me that opened the fallenness of my soul so that the broken part of me ended up being torn. 
insecurity was laid in, and the potential for other people to, to cut me deeper than I'd ever thought I could be cut came in. And all of us in this room, whether we admit it or not, have an event in our life that we could single out in which the world finally broke you open. That your soul was finally rent before the fall, and now the fall was ready to stream in and pour the garbage of this world into your soul. This was my beginning moment, as far as I can tell. From that point on, insecurity and dealing with people was one of the biggest struggles I had. And slowly but surely, I found idols that would try to promise to fill that sector of my soul that was so broken. And you too were offered these idols. It was before, even though you may have said, I love Jesus, I worship God, my family were still a homage to Christ and a love for God. But that didn't mean that we served him. Actually, what we served was success. We served success in my family to the point where I knew that if I was intelligent and successful in that way, I could belittle you. If I was successful in, my, in what I did, I could show you that I was valuable and that you were wrong. And this was to fill this gap that had been created by this one instance and the continually breaking down of that thing. I don't know what yours is, but all of this garbage that has flowed into our souls has been brought in by these idols. And God has come through the cross in Jesus Christ to say, you don't have to believe these idols. You don't have to accept their promises anymore. They only fill you with garbage. Rather, come to me and we will win this fight. And I love that image, by the way. Fight. We're talking about finding satisfaction. And oftentimes the, the aim in most Christian churches is to push you away from the religious things to tell you, hey, Christianity is about having a relationship with God. And it is. But here's the fascinating thing that hit me while I was at Forest Home this summer listening to one of the other preachers that was up there. He says, I don't tell my congregation that it's only a relationship with Christ. Christianity is a war. And I was like, oh, that's really dangerous language. But then he was right. He says, when you finally have that relationship with Christ, something shifts. See, something becomes amiss. Your idols and this life that you were living suddenly goes at war with the Spirit of God who dwells in you. And suddenly they're at each other's throat. And there's this tension where your old way and the flesh and the desires to be fulfilled by these idols of lust, of greed, of success, of beauty, of acceptance, you name whatever yours is, sucks you in and pulls you down. And Christ at the same time is trying to tell you the opposite. No, this is who you are. This is what I've given you and a war breaks out. Some of you have even felt it as you're just about to sin, as you're about to give in to that pride, as you're about to gossip that next time. And there's this tension. God's telling you, no! And everything else in you is saying, yes! It's a war. There's a sudden battle occurring in the soul. What is this? Because honestly, this is the crux of what we're dealing with. When we deal with idols, we can unearth them, we can show them off, but until we know how to deal with them, until we know how to actually allow this battle between God who dwells in our souls and our flesh, the world, and the devil, which, which also vies for our attention and our hearts, until those two things come to head and we learn how to deal with this, we will not find that satisfaction. That's what we're going to try to do a little bit this morning. So let's pray and ask God's blessing as we move forward. Would you join with me? Father, we see that you are in our lives. You are battling on our behalf to free us, to reach us, maybe even to cleanse us of things that are in our souls. 
And God, we know that there's longings in the opposite direction, so we ask that you'd help us, please, as we discover what it, one of the steps, some of the things that you've given to us in your word to actually fight and deal with this battle. We pray you'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we get into this, you may not be surprised that some of the stuff you already know. And so I want to encourage you this morning not to just go, hey, I know this already and, 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 and turn, tune out, but rather to take it seriously as if um, you were in your class and you know one day you're going to leave here and you're actually engaging the battle. You have to actually have these tactics down because guess what? We're actually going to have to have these tactics down. This is real life. This is not a training room. That battle is occurring in this room as we speak. And so let's look at this real quick as we move forward. First of all, the basic principle that we're going to examine is this, that we need to turn from idols and turn to God. Very important to note that this is a turn away and to. You can't just turn away and not turn to something else. You may turn from one idol and turn to another, or you may just you, you can't just turn and go, I, I just turned away, and that's it. That's not possible. In fact, some of you guys may be confused about that idea because in the past, and maybe if you've not been a, a Christian or you, uh, for long or you've, you're not a Christian, in the past you've, you've heard maybe about this idea of holiness. Anybody heard the term holiness, right? Old school term for a lot of us, it's like, hey, that's everyday conversation. But the reality is that holiness in the old school was actually displayed and described as you not sinning. We don't drink, we don't chew, and we don't go with girls who do. You know, that's holiness. And this reality of like, hey, we don't, we don't engage in these practices because we're holy. And you heard the holy rollers being holier than thou. People look down, on, down their nose at you because you're doing something they don't think is good. And so they're self-righteous and judgmental. And this holiness attitude is actually an odd thing. It's a negation of something. We're saying, I don't do this, therefore I'm holy. Well, here's the funny thing. God doesn't describe himself that way. If God is the ultimate holy one, in fact, he's called holy, 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 does that mean God just sits up there and goes, I do nothing? That's why I'm holy. No, don't do that. Nope, don't do that either. No, God's very active all the time. And everything he's active in is holy. Everything that he does is actually holy. Holiness is an attitude. It is an action. It's a turning from sin to turning to righteousness and doing the good blessing people, caring about others, dispensing grace. God is holy as nothing else is holy. But he's not passive. He's not negative. He's a very positive reality. And so holiness, we need to see, is defined not as what we don't do, but as the attitudes of life in which we do engage in that are aimed at God. It is being used by God. And so when we talk about this turning from and turning to, there are some places that this is going to affect us majorly. First is our minds. Notice how this is put in Romans chapter 12. Paul is laying this out. This is the hinge point of the book of Romans. When we went through this, we talked about how this was the point that shifts everything in thinking. It goes from all this theology to practicality, how to live it out. And so he says to them, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, because of everything that he just talked about in, in Christ giving his life and all the blessings that we received, he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is an active thing. Notice this doesn't say have presented or once presented. This is not something you did at a harvest crusade or a church many years ago. It's not one-time event. This is an active, ongoing thing in our lives. 
It is to present yourself daily in a sense, to bring yourself as a, your life forward as a spiritual worship. So that's the first thing I want to point out. This turning from idols and turning to God is not something you will do once. It is something that we will practice daily, if not in the hour, if not right at this moment while you're wondering what the score of your favorite football team is. We're so easily distracted. Our minds are so easily pulled aside. And so we need to present ourselves constantly saying, God, here I am. This is my spiritual act of worship, of devotion to you. Use me. Do not be, and so he goes on. Don't be conformed to this world. Here's that turn. But be transformed by the renewal of your minds. By testing you may discern what the will of God is and what good and sexual and perfect. Now, what I want to point out is this turn first is with the mind. There are thoughts that you and I have about ourselves all the time. And honestly, they're not very nice. The idols have trained us and taught us to speak to ourselves. When we make a mistake, you'll speak to yourself. You're such an idiot. Anybody ever tell themselves that before? Man, I can't get anything right. Oh, you are the ugliest person in the world. I can't believe you would even say that to somebody. Well, why can't I just get this right? Why can't I? I'm so incompetent. Everybody's got their language. But there is a, why is there a constant cycle in our head speaking these negative self-talk to ourselves? This, this tape that's rolling, telling you. And then there's the opposite tape. You're amazing. Nobody can beat you. you it's pride just well swelled up in you, man. You have got this down. So that you don't even see your problem. You're so sure of yourself. And both of these tapes are the idols speaking to us, giving us what we think we need, filling in our gaps. And what we have to be able to do is turn away from these sinful, wicked thinking and turn to God's truth. So when you're telling yourself, you are all that in a bag of chips, you know, you got to come back to the reality that actually I'm a sinner saved by grace and I am who I am by the grace of God. You know what? You could have all this pleasure and release all this pain. No, it's pain that God can use to make my character and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm not a loser. You're worthless. No, I'm made in the image of God. I have an infinite amount of value and God has given me his son Jesus. That's how much he's valued me. There is a difference in thinking that has to occur. But very few of us speak to ourselves with the gospel. Very few of us continue to tell ourselves the truth about who God says we are. See, this isn't about what we think. This isn't about how we feel about it. If God is true and God is not a liar and he exists, what he says about you is far more real than what you possibly think about yourself or feel about yourself because he knows it all. And he has told us what he thinks about us in his word. And the war needs to be between what God has said and what we may think or feel. The idols, that, that's one of the turnings. The second turning has to be then with practice, going from being greedy and collecting what we want, being dragons, to giving away, from being people who break people down to being people who build people up, from being people who are focused on our exterior appearances to being people who focus on our interior character. These are actional differences that we need to live out. Now, I've introduced these things to you, but really they come down to, to one simple thing. How do you do this? Because it's not a bunch of works. It has to be a change in relationship. And Jesus gets into this, and it's by, turn, by turning from engaging in good to good spiritual habits. And what I mean by spiritual habits is this. There are practices that you and I should engage in our life until they become so ingrained in us that they become things that we do 
while we're living every day. We're sacrificing our lives spiritually all the time before God, whether you're at work, at home, in the car, especially in the car. Let me repeat the car one more time. You know, that reality of where everywhere that we go, there needs to be this surrender. And we do this by engaging in these good spiritual habits. Jesus put it this way. He's speaking, and you actually, if you would like, grab your Bible, open to John chapter 15. I want to be able to keep our fingers here in this text, because this is the important section that I really want. It'll be up here, but not for long, so I want you to have it here. Jesus is walking with his disciples. As he's having this conversation, he's about to go to the garden, which he will be betrayed and later crucified. As he's on this journey, he turns to his disciples and he says, hey guys, I'm going to download this information, most important stuff you can get, and then he gets into one of the longest discourses in the Bible. In the middle of this, right here, smack dab in the middle, is John 15. And this is what he tells us. He says, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch, he's he's just earlier called himself the vine. He's talking about the horticulture world of, of vineyards, which everybody had seen and known in their time period. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He says, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. I, I, it's like he's overemphasizing this fact here, right? Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This is very interesting because what he is basically arguing for us is this. We're not God. He's God. We are not the source of the good that comes from within us. He is. Our association and connection with Him, our abiding in Him, is where all the good comes funneling through us. Well, what does that mean? Abiding means to do what you're doing right now. You are abiding in this room. You are dwelling, sitting, living for a time in this room. What Jesus wants is this idea of your abode. Live in your home. Live in Christ, and Christ lives in you. Have this indwelling relationship in which you're hanging out with Jesus all the time. Wherever you go, he goes. Wherever he goes, there you are. You are living with him. Paul put it this way, walk by the Spirit. In other words, live in a manner in which you are always with God, always communicating with God, always being with God. That's what abide means, because it's in that relationship that we actually bear fruit. We can actually resist the idolatry tree and begin to turn to God and enjoy Him. And we find satisfaction. We find fruitful living. We find not empty promises, but full promises. This is based from the relationship that you have with God. This, the things that we will talk about, these practices, they don't save you, right? They can't. The relationship with Christ is what saves you, but it enters into that war. The practices are what keeps us relating deeply with Christ, In order to have the deep relationship with Christ, though, you must have trusted that he's borne your sins and rid that problem for you so you can be close with God. Otherwise, your sin is in the way. And so with this reality, he says, hey, you you guys are cleaned up. You guys are good. So live with me, dwell with me, walk with me, and you will bear fruit. And so we're going to look at four practices this morning that will help open this up. These four practices are well known. They're ancient. They're biblical. But they're needed. And again, I want to warn you, these do not save, but they're excellent in the practice of our relationship. So we're going to start with the first one. And the first practice I want to talk about is abiding in Christ in solitude. What is solitude? Being alone with God. Now, this is kind of an interesting one because Jesus 
would often, it actually says, would withdraw to desolate places and pray. In the book of Mark, it actually says often he would do this. And what's interesting about solitude is this is one of those things that is, is not easily come by in our society, is it? I mean, name the last time you were really alone. One of the funny things is in my life, um, I have a, a chair upstairs in my bedroom, off in the corner and where I can actually sit and I try to do my quiet time there. And I mean the word try because I think there's something insidious going on in my home. I will sit down with my Bible in that chair and my door will be shut or open, doesn't matter. And invariably within five minutes, the homing beacons of my children turn on. It's like Satan's in there going, hey, dad's trying to talk to God. Oh, really? You should go talk to him. Okay. Knock, knock, knock. Hey, Dad, what you doing? I want to see what you're doing. Hey, did you know on Minecraft you can do 17,643 different things? And you're just like, where is this coming from? Or somebody pokes so-and-so and and I got to get up because somebody's screaming. Getting alone to be with God is virtually impossible in a family unit. Now, if you're single, you have different struggles. You're alone, but you've trained yourself to keep yourself distracted. You've got your TV on, you've got your radio going, maybe you've got your, you're constantly rolling through your Instagram, your Facebook, you're keeping yourself up to date, because you know what? Being alone stinks. That's why none of us do it. That's why when you get in your car, you turn your radio on. You keep the tunes blaring, because something's hard about being alone. And guys, in our society, more than ever, we need time alone. We say, hold on, Greg, time out. If you've ever done any kind of recovery work, if you've ever done AA or anything else like that, you'll have heard this idea of the word halt. Anybody heard the term halt? H-A-L-T. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. And what they mean by halt, and this is also in the counseling world, is they will say, look, if you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, it runs the greater risk that you are going to fall into temptation or fall back into your problem. You're going to be tempted more. So, so don't be, try not to be hungry, angry, lonely, or tired too long is usually kind of how it's worked out. They, some people have had stress on that as well. Here's the problem with, with this. Greg, you're telling me to get into solitude when alone is one of the worst case scenarios for my life. I say, I agree with you. But I'm telling you to get alone with God, not your idols. Too often when we get alone, we walk alone to be with our idols. We walk alone to rehearse our successes. We walk alone to nurse our grudges. We walk alone to allow those idols to have their time to feed in our souls. And so when we're alone, yes, it's feeding time for our idols. But I'm saying put your distractions away, drop your, all, your, all your gadgets and technology, movies and videos, books and whatnot, and have a pen, your Bible, and God, and go hang out. Be alone with God. It is so stinking hard. I had to do some of this back when I was in seminary and I've tried to continue to practice a little bit in the last few years. But every time I start to enter it, I remember the stories of loneliness in the Bible. The first time we see solitude shows up, showing up is a, is a young man who's just built his brother out of his um, inheritance. His family inheritance was supposed to go to his older brother. He got it. He stole it away by pretending to be him. And then Jacob took off and ran to his uncle Laban, uh, met his cousins, got, him mar- got married. That was okay in their time period. I know that's weird to us. But, you know, winds up having all these kids. And he's been deceived by his uncle so many times. He's like, we're getting out of here. 
packs up the family, marches away, but the stress increases. His, his, one of his wives stole the family idols and hid them under her sack, and her dad shows up, blaming everybody, ripping through the tents, looking for his stuff, promising to kill people, and, and Jacob's just freaking out because finally, as soon as he gets Uncle Laban to go away, he turns around and his brother Esau is on his way with a 450 men looking like he's going to kill him. Jacob, in in an act of desperation, separates his family into two camps in hopes that if one's attacked, the other can survive. And so he splits them up, and he sends them across the Jabbok River, and he sits on his own side alone. And in the middle of this night of loneliness, suddenly some guy shows up and starts wrestling with him. I don't know what that looked like. It's the funniest scene I think of in my head. Jacob's sitting there out on a rock alone, and this just random old guy just walks up and is like, what you doing here? I don't know, what you doing here? You know, they're in the jets all over. And so I don't know what it is, but suddenly, who provoked who? It's like, what you doing? This is my rock. This is my territory. Oh, yeah, here we go. And they're sitting there, grab onto each other, and they're pulling each other, wrestling, and it's supposed to be about their hip and who has more power in their hip to move people. And suddenly, the guy who's wrestling, Jacob, realizes, you know, I'm not going to overpower him right now, but somehow he has the ability simply to go, tap, and Jacob's hip goes out of socket. Now, Jacob is on the ground, can't move, but will not let go of this guy's heel. Just got the vice grip of death on this guy. And he looks and says, let me go. He says, I will not let you go until you've blessed me. He says, what's your name? He says, my name is Jacob. He says, no, it's not. It is now Israel because you've wrestled with God. I want to talk about freaky stories. Who was this guy that he could say, you've wrestled with God? You get alone, guarantee you, God's going to show up and it's going to be a bit of a wrestling match. It's not easy being alone. I mean, you look at Elijah. Many centuries later, he's just had the greatest moment of his life. He's called down fire on this altar in the middle of, on Mount Carmel. Everybody's seen it. They're all celebrating, killing the other worship. Uh, idolers and all this stuff. Weird scene. Doesn't make sense to the modern mind, but it made sense to them. I don't have time to get into the details, but Elijah's just won this great, great victory. Rain is poured over the land. Um, God has shown himself real and true, and he gets depressed because Queen Jezebel wants to kill him. Marches his way off to Mount Sinai, all alone and depressed. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I'm going to go eat worms. Sitting up there on the mountainside, God talks to him, Elijah, why are you here? Well, there's only all these prophets and they're dead and I'm the only one that's left and you hate me. and da-da. Big wind comes by, fire, all this earthquake, but God's not in any of these things. This little voice comes again. Why are you here? In other words, I didn't send you here. I'm going to recorrect you now. When you get alone, sometimes God rebukes you. God shows up to show you what your problem is. He wants to show you the idols. Then there's the scariest one, which is the one that's most common for most of us, I think, when we get alone, is that Jesus goes off for 40 days in the wilderness. and And it just simply says in Mark, and the devil tempted him. You want to see what you're made of? Go get alone. And I don't mean that as like, well, show what you're made of. No, I'm saying you want to see what's inside of you? Go get alone. The most inordinate, disgusting thoughts, emotions, feelings rise to your mind. 
You begin to wrestle with your idols. You begin to see the temptations in your life. You begin to see the false thinking and the evil thoughts that are rolling through you. And suddenly you are sucked into the cesspool of your own heart. And if you are not willing to fight through that process and deal with those issues and come rolling through that mess, you will not come to that wrestling point with God. And you won't come through that rebuke. And you won't find the fruit that comes when you finally are communing with him alone. Because you know what? We just can't believe what's there. And we just back away going, I I thought I wanted to get away. This is horrible. What is this? It's us. That's what it is. And why we need to practice isolation is we distract ourselves so we're not even clear what we're thinking. We're not even clear what's rolling through our minds. We're not even clear where we think about ourselves and our hearts. And in all that mess, it's rolling through us, affecting us. We don't even know. When you put the silence on, you get alone, and it comes out, you suddenly realize what you've got to face. I want to challenge you guys to begin to practice this sometime every year. I think we should all be able to get away for at least a 24-hour period somewhere. There are monasteries nearby that you can rent a room in so you don't have to use a hotel because those aren't the safest places on earth. You can, and you don't have to agree with their, their, uh, their monastic beliefs in order to, to, to use the rooms. But it's a place to get away. You, you, may have a, you, may have, you may be blessed with a location in the mountains to go to. Who knows? But get away without the distractions. Spend time alone with God and watch what happens. It's important because it will begin to show those thoughts and then you can move on and begin to have that turning from those thoughts to turning towards God's right thinking. Now, the second practice, though, if that one's not tough enough, is this one. We need to abide in Christ by fasting. Um, What's fasting? Well, fasting in the ancient world was not eating. And so Jesus describes that as the Pharisees would do. He says, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by the others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. He tells you, hey, look, fast in secret. In other words, you don't need to go shouting to everybody, I'm fasting. It doesn't mean you don't tell people because it is something you have to tell people when you're working. You're like, hey, come on, let's go get lunch. I'm sorry, I'm fasting. You're not trying to show it off. You can still say it. But the point is simply, he says, what? What are the first two words? Read them with me. And when, not if. Too many of us Christians think it's, and if you fast, no, it's when you fast. This isn't an optional thing. This is a considered a reality for the Christian life. That we are to people who be people who fast. You say, I'm a diabetic. I can't fast. I would die. Good. And you realize you can fast things other than food. In fact, I think our culture needs more of a technological fast than we need a food fast. Let's be honest with ourselves. How would you do a week without your technology? Do you know what kind of emails I would have? Yes, I do. (laughs) You know how much I would miss? Yes, I do. And it probably would be good for your soul. See, fasting is an interesting tool. Fasting, when you fasted food, you were saying, this sustains my life, but I am willing to give up what sustains my life in order to have God more. So fasting is not just I stop doing something. It's something you stop doing in order to receive God. So when you were supposed to eat the meal, you spent time with God in prayer. When you were supposed to drink the soda, you spend time with God in prayer. When you were originally going to text and do all your stuff on your, on your phone, you're actually spending time talking to God. You, you replace the time from no to this. That's that turning from to turning to. If you just fast to fast, it's a health thing. It's not a spiritual thing. 
And for anybody who's actually tried fasting, it's ridiculously hard. Your first week is, your, is, is pretty rough. In the first three days, you're hungry, you feel miserable. Then the flu stuff starts happening because your body's detoxing, this stuff's going on. If you can get past that first week and you get in that second week, what's interesting is you stop feeling hungry. Except when the hunger pang hits. You ever wondered why Jesus was fasting for 40 days and then he became hungry? The scripture said, I always thought that was funny. Of course he's hungry. He's not been eating for 40 days. Well, no, actually what happens is your body starts to crave so desperately the food, it puts every effort to get you to go eat. And it's pressing on you with every, all the need inside of you. So it's a hunger pang. It hurts. You're doubled over. All you can think about is food. All you can ponder is food. Like you're thinking about it now because it's getting close to lunch, you know, kind of reality. But you know why we practice that? Because if you're fighting any form of addiction or habitual sin or an idol in your life and it comes to you and says, come on, let's do this, come on, let's do this, come on. You have tra- been training yourself to say no. It's called self-denial. And we practice fasting because it's a practice of self-denial. It's a practice to say, I don't need this, I need you. That's why Jesus' verse that he's thinking about while he's fasting is, a man does not live on, the bre- on bread alone, but upon every word that comes from the mouth of God. Saying, I'm not living for food right now. I am living for God right now. He will sustain me. And he, that's why the temptation from the devil was so strong. He's saying, live off of your earthly sustenance. And he says, that's not what I need. I am doing this because I want God more than I want even life. And in a culture where we want our stuff more than we want God, I think we need to reintroduce some fasting back into our lives. Amen? Because, listen, fluffy Christians, us American Christians, we are fluffy. We don't have the grit for persecution. Heck, we don't have the grit for insults that are coming our way. And maybe it's because we're so keen on having our desires met that we haven't learned how to take it a little bit. And fasting enables us to be able to take it. To be able to say, I know I I want that acceptance, but I don't need it. I know I want that, that thing, but I don't need it. And a regular practice of fasting in your life will help you. So I want you to consider, what is it God may be calling you to fast? What if it's caffeine? We will provide aspirin for you next Sunday. You know, sign ups. No, what if, but there are things that we just need to fast and we need to practice. So I want to encourage you in that. In that. Yes, and, and just note for this final point, um, fasting is an affliction. It's, it's not easy. It's hard. So don't be surprised when it's difficult. Keep pressing forward. Keep learning. Figure out something that you would like to give up in fasting. Now, the third practice in abiding with Christ is the one that we know. We know it's prayer. You know what? We all know we should pray. Jesus got away often and prayed. We just saw this verse. But here's my point. A lot of us feel guilty for how we pray. Because honestly, we really stink at it. Not all of us in this room, but a lot of us do. I was very comforted. I I love Tim Keller. I like what he writes. I like uh, listening to his sermons. And I love that he wrote in in his book on prayer, look, Every, every great Christian I've ever known has all admitted to feeling like they're horrible at prayer. I don't think anybody feels like they've got it down. So if that's where you're at, don't let that distract you from learning how to pray. Don't let that hold you back from entering into prayer. 
Because most of us are sitting there, we're thinking prayer is this thing you got to get on your knees in your closet, and this is good practice, and you should do some of this kind of stuff, and you got to pray for three hours straight. But guys, there's more to prayer than just the time period of your practicing it. I mean, there's, there's the game. You know, you got practice, and then you got to play the game. When you're alone in your room and you're dedicated time with God, that's called practice. You're in there. You're with God. You're focused on God. You're learning how to be with God. It's hard. Practice stinks. But it's so that when you get in the game called everyday life, prayer is part of what you do. That when you suddenly feel that urge to rip yourself apart or that longing to have that thing you're fasting, the heart runs to God because you've been practicing talking to God. And now practice becomes something that you do. You're starting to talk to God. You're relating to God. You're turning straight to Him. It becomes a conversation in the middle of your day on the 91 freeway when you're talking to that sales associate, when, you're, when you just smash your finger with a hammer, whatever it is, you're going, bam, you're going, oh God, but you're actually talking to Him. You're going, make that hurt less or whatever you're feeling. But prayer is something that we don't give up on. Jesus actually told this parable to remind us to not give up. And it's basically this parable of an unjust judge. He says, hey, he told them parable of the fact that they ought always to pray and not lose heart, never give up. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he, refu- for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Do I neither fear God nor man, respect man? Yet because this widow keeps bugging me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And his point is, do you hear what the unjust judge says? How much more will your father give you what you need? We go to him and we pray to God and we ask God for things because we know he loves us. You know what's sad? We trust our money more than God. You know how I know? I can call on a meeting at our church to come together for prayer and less than 10% of us would show up. And yet if I was to tell us that we were going bankrupt and we were in the red and I called a meeting, most of us would be here. Because we believe it's the money that sustains the church. That's a lie. It's the prayer that sustains the church. God provides the money. Guys, when we figure out it is God who is our God and not the idols of money, not the idols of success, we will fill this place up with hearts that are longing for God to hear our cries, to meet our needs, and to reach people. The reason you don't see people coming to Christ, I believe, the reason we don't feel the power to beat sin, the reason we are still struggling in certain aspects of our lives, I believe we gave up on prayer. We're too busy, I really think is the bottom line. We're just too busy. It's time to start fasting to have some time to pray. I'd encourage you maybe to fast a football game and go join our people who pray in our, in our um, back room. They, there's, we have a um, conference room over here in the B room. People go in there and they pray for this service and the first service and the third service every Sunday. What an opportunity for you to go and be a part of that. To sacrifice a little bit of time so God can do a great thing. Prayer is not something that we can just ignore. It's something that we need to have, something that should be involved in our life continually. That's what Paul says, pray without ceasing. And I just want to challenge you to find a place for prayer. Maybe it's not this dedicated kind of thing. Maybe it's joining other people in prayer. Maybe it's just learning, taking that time so you can learn every day involves prayer. But all of this filters together to be 
something that is necessary. We have to have that conversation with God. We have to be connected with Him. I could go on and on, but let's just hit the fourth practice real quick, which I don't have to go on to very deeply because we should abide in Christ by reading Scripture. Do I really have to say more? <laughs> we know this one. How many of you have heard of gigo or garbage in, garbage out? Gigo, it's been said different ways. Garbage in, garbage out was a, was a concept in the early days of software development. And the idea was if you put garbage into the computer, you'd get garbage out of the computer. The same thing is true for you and me. Jesus put it this way, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. Speaking to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of what you store up in your heart, it's saying, is what comes out of your mouth. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Simple question, what are you putting in your mind? What are you putting in your mind? What is before your eyes, through your ears, and coming out of your mouth the most often? Because we are the one generation that has no excuse that the Word of God shouldn't be filtered through our lives all the time. Between the podcast of great preachers that we have available out there in the world, the fact that you can get free, guys, hear me, I don't like reading my Bible. Good. Open up the BibleGateway.com. You can listen to your Bible with different readers. Every single chapter of the Bible, all you got to do is put your earbuds in and go for a run. You'll have the Bible listened to in a year. Easy. Turn it on in your car. Put it in your life. There's no excuse we don't have the Bible in when we have the worship music that we have that repeats the, the Bible, when we have the preachers that we have, when we have the podcasts that we have, when we have this, just all kinds of remarkable instruments from various Bibles to Bible studies to bookstores to Amazon. There's no reason, guys, we shouldn't be having this in our lives all the time. I don't know why we should even have to bring this up. I should be able to misquote a scripture in this place go, uh-uh, actually, that's this one. Right, no, I'm just kidding. But I would hope that we're so invested in the Word of God. That is part of our thinking. How do you combat this bad thinking if you're not entering into the truth? Now, these four practices are not the ultimate end. They, I don't want you to think that you do these and you have a great relationship with God. No, relationship starts when you've received Christ. But don't think it stops there. My wife and I do premarital counseling, and one of the things we, we like to talk about at the beginning is that when you're dating and you've dated for a while, you're like, I love this person, I know this person, you get married, you go into this time of the honeymoon, and you're thinking, oh, you're so happy because you love them because you know who they are, and then year half or year one or two hits, depending on how long it goes, and suddenly you wake up one morning and you go, who are you again? Because I thought I knew you, but man, you are Gross. Ladies are going, yes, men are ghosts, you know. Or you're going, I don't know what happened, but I know you're beautiful on the outside, but that was the ugliest thing I've ever seen come out of your mouth. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I like this about you. I'm not so sure I like that. And suddenly the things you know you think you don't know, and suddenly you're going, who is this person? And you enter into this conflict of the entering of the relationship, and you know what's going on is now you've hurt, hit the spot where you actually got to get to know each other. Date all you want. Live with each other all you want. There is, a, there is a clear proven change that occurs. There's a point in which you have to begin to get to know each other. 
You have to begin to accept the sinfulness in each other, fight for each other's holiness, understand the depth of which you go. But you know what it costs and why most people won't climb that mountain? Is it costs self-sacrifice. It calls you to go through pain in order to love the other person. Same thing is true with our relationship with God. You come to Christ, you think, I know God, he's awesome. You learn some theology, I really know God. And yet, have we gone through the pain of these practices to truly enter into the depths of the relationship with God? Because if we don't, these idols are waiting here to give us the easy route out every day of the week. It's a battle. But I hope as a church that if we were just to practice these four things for six months, what would change? Can you imagine that? Maybe that's what God's called us to in this series. Maybe that's where you change your small group's conversation to from here. It's time to live out these practices to see what God wants to do. Would you bow your heads with me? As a Christian, right where you're at, you may have an opportunity right now to really think through what practice God is leading you to begin. But some of you in this room, you may not actually be walking with God in a way that I've been describing and you're thinking, hey, that's some cool religious stuff, but I want to hold, hold off for a second and say, you know, before you can enter into that religious stuff, that interesting practices, there has to be a relationship with God. Oh, I'm good with God. I mean, I'll do these good things and I'll be good with it. No, no, no. You got to understand, we all have sin. The good works don't clean that up. God has told us that it is our sin that will be judged on judgment day. He's not here, so it hasn't happened. And all of us on that day will be found guilty. And there is a destination for those of us who are found guilty. It's called hell. But God does not want us to stay there. So he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to bear our sin on the cross so that it would be cleaned out of the way and we could have a relationship with God. And that's awesome because you don't have to clean it up yourself. You don't have to make yourself perfect. God just says, I love you. And I'm willing to forgive you if you'll trust me. Once that's right and the relationship is clear, these practices work amazing. But you've got to begin at the beginning, and that is with trust. And this morning, I want to give you a chance to trust that God has indeed done that for you if you're willing to, that he's taken your sins on the cross. If that's you and you're ready to begin that journey with God and that relationship, or maybe you're coming back, either way, I want to give you that chance to do this right now. And that's you, just let me know that you're, you're ready by putting your hand up. You're saying, yes, that's me. I am ready to make this right with God. I'm ready to begin that journey. Right where you're at and just begin to kind of lay out those sins that you know are in your life. And then you're going to practice the very thing we've talked about. After you're done talking through those, imagine yourself turning from them to God. Ask Him to take those sins and place them on Christ. Tell him that you trust you've been forgiven. Then ask him to come into your life and lead you from here. God, for those people who are going to be working through this prayer in this time, I ask that you'd help them and guide them. That they would be right with you in Jesus' name. Amen.